0: If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. We'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 10. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, great God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we ask now that your spirit may illuminate to us the importance of this passage. For we need it. Your people need it. We need to be convicted where necessary. We need to be encouraged where necessary. Those outside of your fold need it. Because in this passage, we find eternal life. Indeed, as we find in every page of the Scriptures, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. And we ask that by your Spirit, he may be made known, that he may be proclaimed, that he may be believed in and and rejoiced in. For it is in him that we find life. It is in him that we find sonship. It is in him that we are forgiven and given a new life. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If we were to go around town asking individuals from all sorts of backgrounds... Tell me about your father. What might we hear from them? There might be some who share various stories, meaningful moments with them, life-changing experiences, conversations that impacted their lives. Others might share heartbreaking stories about when their father left. They might share about uh, his temper that impacted their family in a powerful way there are also some who would respond, what father? I've never had one. Given the hardships, the pain that is often associated with fatherhood today, it's worth asking if if our first-hand or second-hand experiences of poor fatherhood has shaped the way that we have thought about our heavenly father. How do we relate to him? We, We know Jesus is loving, but... But can we say the same thing about the Father, our Heavenly Father? Or or is He just looming over us, waiting for us to fall, so that He can then flip the switch? Or can we say, the Father loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? We can. We can say that. And this truth comes to realization in our passage this evening. Though John is writing to a church in crisis, he, he wants to assure these first century believers that they truly belong to Jesus. They are accepted by the Father, and they should then live as children of God. And we'll look at this, we'll look at this using three points this evening. First, who we are. Secondly, who we are not. And then third, what we will be. We begin with our first point. To help us consider who we are, John provides a command. We find this in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. That him is clarif- clarified for us not only in a few words, but also earlier in the chapter. He's talking about Jesus. John exhorts us to abide in Christ. And this might sound familiar to some of us, doesn't it? John most likely has a, a powerful I am statement impressed on his heart as he's writing these verses coming from John 15. Jesus declared that he was the true vine. He uses this word picture to, to illustrate the, the importance of producing fruit. And we read in John 15, 4, Jesus says, "'Abide in me.'" and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding has a a relational component. It's recognizing that we get our life from Christ, that, that we are in a covenantal relationship where we are found in him and he is in us by the Spirit. It includes being in complete dependence upon him, realizing that he is our life. And without him, we have nothing. Abiding in Christ is not just sticking with him because he gives us what we want. No, we remain in him. We live in him because we love him. So why does John tell us to abide in Christ? He gives us two reasons later on in in verse 28 one that we may have confidence and secondly that we may not be ashamed and these two reasons are are tied closely together because they're forward-facing john is looking to a future day when christ returns when he appears perhaps this appearance brought uncertainty in the hearts of first century believers Maybe this appearance brings some uncertainty in your life. What was once hidden in shadows will be revealed by the glorious light of Jesus Christ. And yet, for those who abide in Christ, who live in him, who remain in him, who share a hand of fellowship with him, there is not fear, but a newfound confidence in his appearance. Why? because we shall stand before the judgment throne and not wonder about our destiny. We won't be put to shame by Christ, but we will actually be received into his arms as his people. This is not due to our goodness or our righteousness, but because of Christ's goodness, his righteousness. Abiding in Christ gives us hope for the future, but also for today as well. Because uh, abiding in Christ is not merely a mental exercise. It's not just assenting to particular truths, though truths they are. Verse 29 tells us that who you abide in will express itself in what you think, in what you say, and in what you do. So verse 29 says, if, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. How do we know someone is abiding in Christ? They are practicing righteousness. Just as Christ is one who practices righteousness and is himself righteous, so those who are united to him, the branches of the vine will produce that fruit that the vine is meant to produce. They will do what is right. Paul speaks of this in Galatians. What counts is faith working itself out through love. Because sin is not in the vine, verse 5 of chapter 3, the branches themselves do not continue in sin. They pursue that which is right, that which is just, that which is loving. And we'll look at what John means by this later on. But looking at our passage this evening, we we see two sons and we see two fathers. The father of those who abide in the Son and who practice righteousness is God the Father. And just to emphasize that point, John writes in verse 10, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He states it by way of negation, by saying what it is not. And John says something like this several times throughout our passage. And it's worth saying. It's simply not true that all humans are children of God. He is certainly our creator, We are certainly made in his image, but only some know him as father. John is clear that our status as believers who are found in Christ, who are living in him, is that of children. Who are we? We are children of God. And one way we know this is by our actions. It's Because we're children of God that we practice righteousness. We are are not first expected to act in a certain way, uh, to be accepted. But by faith in Christ, abiding in Him, we are accepted, we are adopted, and we are brought up in the ways of the family of God. And yet, we still struggle. Some of us read about abiding in Christ, practicing righteousness, and, and we don't recognize ourselves, do we? It feels as though we're in a spiritual no-man's land. So what now? What is keeping us from living in the fullness of joy that is found in being children of God? It's our experience, isn't it? Which brings us to our second point, who we are not. In verse 7, John gives us another command. Little children, let no one deceive you. John speaks of of two forms of deception in this letter. It's doctrinal and it's ethical. Doctrinally, some ex-members of the church denied that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh. It's a serious issue. It strikes at the heart of our faith. But if we're honest... Falling prey to theological heresy is not typically our temptation. We're Orthodox Presbyterians. It's, it's in the name. But quite to the contrary of the, the well-known joke, OPC does not stand for only perfect church. We do have weaknesses. And a prominent one, a prominent temptation for individuals in our circles has to do with our conduct, namely our lack of love. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, John lays the deception of conduct on the table. This is what those uh, ex-members of the church would, would proclaim. If, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Those deceivers were saying, well, what we think and what we believe, there's not necessarily a connection there. You can live how you'd like. And this is a deception at the top of John's mind right now. Not practicing the truth, but practicing sin. And looking at verse 10, this includes not loving our brothers and sisters. And we know this is a big deal for John because he mentioned it a chapter earlier. In chapter 2. We can't be deceived about this, friends. If we reflect on how we communicate with one another with other brothers and sisters, what might we find? What might be said of our interactions with fellow Christians? Text messages, phone calls, online interactions, speaking with each other face to face. We can often resort to name calling, mischaracterizations, and other actions that show a lack of love to our brother, to our sister. Oftentimes we justify it in defense of the truth. Well, I'm in the right. I gotta stick, stand my ground. But that's actually a disservice to the truth. The truth ought to be presented in a spirit of gentleness and love. And this is just one specific example that John gives, but John also speaks broadly about this dilemma that we're in. In in verses 4 through 6, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And this is a warning for us. Do not Be deceived. Do not think that walking in darkness is okay if you call yourself a child of God, to believe that we can call ourselves children and yet not care about how we treat one another. The children of God are those who abide in Christ and who practice righteousness, who practice love towards one another. The other children in our text They practice sin. They practice lawlessness. That is not who we are, right? At this point, the passage seems to put us in a difficult place, at least on the surface. We know that well-known passage in in 1 John that states if we say we have no sin, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that's where we go naturally when we hear statements like whoever makes practice of sin is of the devil. And some here are struggling with this. There are real fights against the flesh going on. And at times, it seems like you won't make it. You try to take inventory, but when you look for fruit at that particular moment, it looks like you're more child of the devil and the child of God one pastor says we we might not walk in sin but we do fall into it and we fall into it often and that uh, hard question might arise in your head it's one too hard to even utter out loud is God the father really my father Well, recalling our points this evening, I I have shown my cards. We didn't start with who we want to be and with who we really are. No, we, we began with who we are. Now we're considering who we are not. John is not trying to strip us of our assurance here. He wants us to hold on to it, to rejoice in it as those who are in Christ. And so what is he doing here? Well, John is not just talking about anyone who sins at all. The children of God do sin, but there's a difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God sin, but they come to Christ for forgiveness. They sin, but are not owned by it. They sin, but they are grieved by their sin. That's what children of God do. The children of the devil, well, sinfulness is their identity. They characteristically practice sin. Sin is not something that they stumble upon, but it is something that they've been reared up in. In fact, their father has taught them to do this from early on. This is not referring to believers, but to those outside the fold. And one reason we know this is because of the word that John accompanies with sin. It's not just sin, but it is what? It is lawlessness. That's a heavy word, lawlessness. Jesus uses this word in reference to those who will receive end-time judgment. The lawless will receive that judgment. The Greek translation of the Psalms uses this word lawlessness 16 times, and it is always in reference to, not to God's people, but to God's enemies. Lawlessness is never used to describe God's children. Those who practice sin and lawlessness are not children of God, but children of the devil. Brothers and sisters, we are not children of the devil. We are children of God who are surrounded by The love of a heavenly father, even when we stumble, even in our low points, we are surrounded by love. But some of us might think that this is simply too good to be true. Well, the, the good news is, is that there is still more to come. That brings us to our third and final point, what we will be. We might grant the point, okay, those who abide in Christ and who practice righteousness are, are children of God. But there's still some reservation. Hasn't he grown impatient by now? After years, seasons of messing up, some of us with particular besetting sins we've been fighting against, hasn't he grown tired? And as parents, some of us might be able to uh, think of a moment where you try to be patient, but your children just push you one too many times. And what happens? You blow up. You shout. You get angry. Are we just waiting for that moment where the father is patient, but just up to a certain point, And then he will blow up on us. Well, let's look together. Let's look together in our text. The very first word, uh, verse of chapter 3. And there is a command here. In the first word, see, open your eyes to what? What kind of love the Father has given to us? The word what kind is used elsewhere in, in the New Testament to, uh, to, to speak of something grand, something beyond comprehension, the stones of the Jerusalem temple. John is calling to, uh, to our attention now, the grandness, the love of God without compare. If you've ever had a road trip, there might come times where you see something stunning and what do you do to the, the kids in the back? You say, look, look over here, look at this site. And, well, you're going 70 miles an hour. And they missed it in just a moment. And they're sad about it. They're bummed. They wanted to see that beautiful sight that you were speaking of. But they won't. They won't see it again. Well, this sight, the sight that John calls us to, is not one that will fade in a moment. It is here to stay. And so what is that sight? See what kind of love the Father has given us. That that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is a a beautiful sight that will not fade away. You will not miss it, not even the children in the back seat. And this commandment is exactly what we need in moments of spiritual distress. When we feel caught in the middle, see good fruit on one side, we see bad fruit on the other side and we, we don't know what to do. Well, what is our instinct in those moments? We, well, we got to avoid the devilish fruit, right? Give me the how-to. I want the, the article with five steps to help me move from the, the devilish family over to the godly family. I want to be loved by my heavenly father. I want to be accepted by my father. We can be tempted to to think that all we have to do is just work harder, to to try more. The, The infamous Bob Newhart sketch may come to mind. Just stop it. And then we'll receive that love and affection, that acceptance that we so crave. But that's not how children of God live. The gospel is a message that cares about our conduct, that cares about what we do, but it turns it on its head by saying, it is finished. Now, offer up your life as a living sacrifice. This is a declaration that there is nothing you can do to make yourself more a child of God than you already are. Just see, open your eyes in faith You are already children of God. And how did this declaration come to be? How how can we be called children of God when we still sin? That's a good question. Verses 5 and verses 8 give us our answer. Verse 5, you you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in the second half of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so what we have here in our text is a double hope, a double portion. We heard earlier about the hope that we have in Jesus' second coming. Here, we are given hope in his first coming. As Hebrews, Hebrews 2 verse 14 states, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. And in Christ's very appearance, what do we have but a demonstration outwardly in flesh and blood, a demonstration of the Father's love for you and for me. John tells us in chapter 4, in this is love. And We have a lot of folks in our culture that love to talk about what love is. They want to celebrate love of a particular kind. Well, this verse gives us a way to flip the script on them. You talk of this love, well, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. The father gave his son over to death for sinners like you, sinners like me, so that he may turn away his wrath and shower us in grace. Did he do this because he's mad at us? No. He did this because he loves us. The Father loves you and he calls you his child. Even when you don't feel like one. And we'll conclude with an important moment in our passage. It's a verse intended for strugglers like us, for those who feel as though they're in a spiritual no-man's land, having declared our status as children of God. Here's what John says in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be Has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The gospel hope for redeemed sinners like me and you is that we have not arrived. Yes, we have been saved from our sin, we have saved from the deceit of the devil, we're placed on a new path, but we have not yet arrived dropping our bags, kicking off our shoes, laying on our cozy bed arrived. We are still awaiting our final destination. The fact that we still struggle with sin ought not to defeat us because we will be victorious. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Do you feel like a Son or daughter of the devil this evening, do do some days not look so good? Here is good news for you. What we will be has not yet appeared. We will be completely and utterly, fundamentally transformed. Theologians call this moment the beatific vision. It is the vision of God's glory as revealed in the face of Christ Jesus. And and one theologian writes that, that, that this vision of God purifies us. It transforms our bodies and it leads us into the fullness of covenant blessing. The richest and deepest enjoyment of God that his human image can experience. This vision of God is what we were made for to see him, to enjoy him, to be transformed by him. How exactly this will come about, we don't know. But John tells us that we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. Though we are frail sons and daughters, though we are sons and daughters who are prone to wander, we will be, at the last day, conformed to the image of not an imperfect son of God, but of the perfect son of God. Now we know why John commands us to see, don't we? Because by seeing, we will be transformed into the sons and daughters that we were always meant to be, even from the very beginning. And just like with our first point, this future hope ought to encourage us today. Our future hope is also our present hope. As those who are now God's children, abide in Christ, practice righteousness, do not be deceived by doctrinal or ethical forms of deception, but look to him And many years ago, years before John, years before Jesus became uh, God the Son, became Jesus, became man, the psalmist David proclaimed this similar truth. The themes that we read in this passage are expressed by him in Psalm 11, verse 7. And he wrote and he sang, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds the upright shall behold his face in Christ that will be true for us and as we come to the table it's appropriate to say that this meal is not just for those who arrived for those who are without sin if that was a requirement our Lord would have had his final meal alone. This table is a visible sign of the Father's love for you, of his great love for you. It's a small taste of the heavenly feast that we will experience, the feast that we're invited to, the wedding banquet of his beloved son. So come, eat, and be satisfied. This meal is for his children. By faith, we are made partakers of Christ's body and blood. And as we eat, we look to the day when our faith will be sight, when we will see him as he is. So let us come together in prayer. Let's ask the Spirit to continue to prepare our hearts and to bless us as we partake of this meal together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We are unworthy recipients, and yet, in your kindness, you have lavished us with your love, Your love that covers us despite our frailty. Your love that is expressed to us in the coming of your Son, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came once to destroy the power of sin in our lives, who will come once again to transform us and to mold us into the image of the Son. Lord, as we consider now the importance of, of partaking in your holy meal, that last supper that you shared with your disciples. We ask that you may give us this joy in realizing that we are truly sons and daughters of God, that by your blood we have been purchased, we have been adopted, and we are now accepted. And there's nothing, nothing more that we can do. It has already been done. We thank you for the beauty of that gospel message, one that we need day in and day out. Because it is a message that brings salvation. It is a message that brings transformation. So we thank you. We praise you. It's in your name, O Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.